What would you think if I invited you into a conversation? So I was at a meeting recently, uh, and the organization, we had a whole day. It was a, it was a killer good meeting. It was a really impressive meeting. And the whole day got together, and uh, they brought all these people in. And we ended with a one-hour discussion around accountability. And I asked if I could record it to give you a copy of the podcast so we could listen to it. What would you say if I told you today is the day we're going to listen to that? Hey, everybody. Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Investigation Safety Moment. How are you? So today I'm going to introduce you to a guy. If you don't know him, you should. Uh, his name's John McMahon. And he's the director of safety at Fortis, British Columbia, Fortis, BC. Although I don't know if you're going to get to actually, um, <laughs> this is terrible. I don't know if you're actually going to get to hear him. You, you, I mean, you do a little bit maybe. But what he did was have this meeting where he brought in all these just rock stars of kind of the new view safety, but rock stars in an applied way. And then he filled the room with his leadership team. And they had this uh, this workshop, and I was lucky enough to get to be a part of it. No big deal. I mean, I, I'm sure they had an extra 45 minutes and thought, who should we bring in? Oh, what about him? But I was, in my opinion, the junior member of the day because there was just some amazing, amazing, amazing people in that meeting. And you'll get to hear some uh, from them because this meeting is really a, an opportunity for us to share the, the closing discussion of, um, of what happened and what took place. Now, it, it's interesting because the people who asked the questions aren't going to be included uh, on, in the podcast for a couple of reasons. One is I didn't really get permission to use their voice. But secondly, they didn't have microphones. So even if I had permission to use their voice, I couldn't use them because the only people that were mic'd were the people on the panel. And, and panel discussions can go, I know you know this, they can go, Either way, they can be good or bad. They can be incredibly boring or kind of interesting. The weirdest thing about being on a panel, if you've never been on one, is you don't know how much to talk. You don't want to talk too much because then you're the you're hogging it. But you don't want to talk not very much because then you look like an idiot. So you want to find that sweet spot between stupid and hog and somehow take that place. I, I think I actually fell to the hoggy side of this. You'll have to be a decision but Daryl and, and the gang, you'll hear all their voices. They actually were quite amazing at what happened. I, I'm, I'm super interested in how you listen to this. Well, not how. You're going to listen with your ears. I got that. I'm super interested in what you think after you listen to this because it really is a discussion. And this makes perfect sense. I mean, an organization just moving into a whole new way to understand safety they're going to be mostly interested in this notion of accountability. How do we how do we manage accountability? And accountability is really interesting because accountability is not really a tool. It's an artifact. It, accountability doesn't exist because you make it exist. Accountability exists because your system creates a feeling where people are accountable. They are accountable to one another, right? So when you think about accountability not as something you do to an organization – but something that is a byproduct of the organization, uh, the whole discussion of accountability gets a little bit different. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that's fine because everybody comes to this 
in their own way. And every single leader you've worked with in your entire career has struggled around this notion of accountability. It's hard because it sounds like we're saying just throw everything away and allow people to run with scissors. But in fact, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Accountability is a partnership, right? I mean, leadership creates an organization where workers can be successful. And it's in the pinch points. It's, it's, in the, it's in the couplings where we know we have potential failures. And as complexity increases, accountability becomes less and less of a weapon and more and more of an explanation. And that's really where we wanted to go with this conversation. But to get there, we'll have to listen to some, some answers. So here's what I think I'm going to project. You, you tell me if you like this idea or not is I'll give you the questions to the best as, uh, as I can remember them, and then you can listen to the way the answers were crafted around those questions. And that'll give us a pretty good diving in place, uh, a deep end, the, a deep end of the pool by which we can jump off the diving board and listen to this discussion. See, see what you think. It's a, it's a different idea. It's certainly a different podcast than we've done before. But that doesn't mean anything. It could be the best one ever. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? It's a great experiment, and you get to be a part of it. So without any further adieu, that's French. Here is the 2019 Fortis BC Safety Summit, uh, sponsored by the absolutely fabulous John McMahon, the safety manager. And our ending discussion at the end of the day, when everyone's tired, the ending discussion around accountability and new safety. Sit back and relax and see what you think. Okay, so let's start with question one. And question one was really interesting because it was a it was a toe dip into the accountability question because the questioner didn't want to straight up ask the question around accountability but in fact got through it to a really interesting artifact, an artifact that he was, he was especially fixated on. And here's what he said. They looked at past incidents in their company over the last 10 years, and they determined in the last 10 years that 80% of their accidents were caused by the same 20% of their people. So they'd looked at all this data, they'd looked at all this information, and they had determined that 20% of their employment pool, 20% of the people that work there, 20% of the people caused 80% of the accidents. All this data, and he's feeling, and he's a great guy, so he's a super nice guy. He's feeling really confident because he's got this data behind him. And so he pops the question, he asks the question, if this is true, if 80% of the people, um, or 80% of the problems are caused by the people, then accountability must be a very, very, very important tool to actually bring that behavior into alignment. Right. Which is, that's real. So can I push you on that? Are you feeling okay with it? So you really think that's interesting, right? You, you feel that's very interesting? I, I find that incredibly not very interesting. So because it's a retrospective view I would question how you determine failure. It really makes me ask how you do investigations, how you determine who's actually responsible for the failure, because you're going to choose who sort of hangs out for that failure, right? And so you're making decisions early on in the organization 
that if a worker's not following lockout tagout procedure, that's the worker's fault, right? So that would ding the worker, right? So I would say you're, I would say you've got a lot of noise in that data that makes me wonder how valuable it is, right? I mean, Wilfredo Pareto gave us the Pareto curve a long time ago, so we know the 80-20 is always going to statistically sort of appear. But my question is, is how do you determine who is a frequent flyer? And that, it's just a question. I mean, I don't, I don't, anybody else in the panel, jump in. I, so I I'd, I'd add in, because I, I liked your comment on, on, you're looking at investigation data, which is historical data, and how has your organization changed? So one of the big changes we made uh, as we went through the journey is we actually just stopped doing investigations. So this fine gentleman is named Daryl Haas. And Daryl Haas, for years and years and years, was the director of safety at ConocoPhillips Canada Operations. He's retired now. And, and now he just kind of hangs out. Um, he's got the perfect life. But he really was an early adopter to the new view. And you could tell by the way he speaks. Because an investigation was uh, something would go wrong. And so you'd put people isolated in a room. And you had an investigator come in and take a statement from them. And, you know, and then might as well have a bright light shining on them and everything else. And then you put them out. And the investigator would pull all the information together and come up with their own conclusions as to how the incident transpired, which is usually full of the investigator's bias and actually didn't tell us a whole lot. So then as we changed the world and started putting together learning teams, we'd pull all together the people in the room who actually did the work, and they'd start describing it. And, and invariably, you go through the process, and about a third of the way in, someone goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not the way I saw it at all. And, and all of a sudden, you have this much more complex and, and uh, bigger context of how things actually happen. So you may find that, that you know, there's a group of people who continually fail in their lockout tagouts. But in, in fact, the root case might be that the engineers aren't actually prescribing what work needs to be done within the 90-day plan. That was our most recent series of incidents that we had, was that we have a 90-day plan that says work is somewhat set, and we're not going to have any break-ins on that. And over time, these things started creeping in. We started normalizing break-in work. The real route to change the incident frequency was to make sure our engineers were specking enough time so operations could execute it. So it would look like the operations was failing, but in fact, it was engineering who needed to improve their work process. Because, and we're still kind of dancing around the real question, which is around accountability, right? So the interesting thing is, is if you have 20% of your workforce that's causing most of your accidents, when you say accountability, are you, is, that, is, that, is that a synonym for discipline? So what do you mean when you hold that 20% more accountable? Are you going to punish them until they, they become in the 80%? So it's at this point, because as you can imagine, the stuff that Daryl and I are saying is interesting to them, but they're, they're pretty cautious. They're listening really carefully. It's at this point they bring in the idea that the, the notion that you can either blame and punish or learn and improve. You can either get better or get even. And, you know, that's a part that we talk about a bunch. And the group now is interested in sort of the very stark nature of those two choices. So you're telling us we can only learn and improve or we can only blame and punish. We can't do both. And there's a certain amount of uncomfortableness uh, present in the audience when Daryl comes to the rescue. Well, I, I would say, again, it's, I don't think it's a... And or, it, there's a bit of an and in there. So uh, I, I get this question from field uh, operations leaders all the time because I'm a leader. Part of my job as a leader, you look right in there, is to hold people accountable. What does that mean? When things go wrong, how do I hold people accountable? So you heard Kim reference that. So the, the language you use with our leaders then 
and we actually stole this from something that Todd and Sidney Decker were talking about, is the word, root of that word accountable, is account. So you can do one of two things. As a leader, you choose to follow on the side to say that I want to hold you account for the wrongs you've caused me, and therefore pay me from your account for that wrong. Or do you want to say, I was not there when the work was completed. Tell me how work got done. Give me an account of the work so I can better understand the context and help you be more successful next time. Only one of those builds the level of trust and candor that you want as a leader so that you know how work is actually going on. You have a choice. You can build trust and, and get more insight into how work occurs or not. But then what I do say is there's two processes we have at work, and this is where your HR team can help you. We have accountability when an incident occurs. That you should only judge a person based on their body of work, and that's performance management. So don't get performance management and the accountability processes mixed up. Leaders have to do both. Get an account of what happened, but then also give adequate performance management so your workers are meeting at least the minimum level or higher. So you can start to feel the gears turning. Little puffs of white smoke are coming out of managers' ears in the audience. And then the idea that, well, what does discipline do? I mean, when do we engage discipline? And, and what's interesting is that there's all of a sudden this new idea. It's not a new idea to us, but it's a new idea to lots of managers that they, they really probably won't discipline their way into better safety. And Daryl continues. His, so what we've done is we've actually gone away from a lot of, a lot of the discipline pieces. So we've had people come in and say, I thought I was going to get fired. I came and told you the whole story. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I was so honest, but I did. And you use that to go and explain to the rest of the workforce how they could get better next time and prevent them from cutting into the wrong line. Because realistically, I'm pretty sure that that worker did not try to cut into a live 10-inch line full of gas on purpose. So why should and, I punish them for And if they did, that? you're really bad at HR. Yeah. <laughs> You're hiring the wrong people, yeah. right? So that's what we're finding over time, that as we've gone away from where we use punitive practices to try and put control on the workforce, we've switched that over to having that more open learning mindset. 90, you know, one, of the, one of the things I, I use with leaders, I ask that question, how many bad workers do you have working for you? My wife works in public health, and she says three. She has an actual number that she knows. <laughs> I know who those three are because I hear them at supper time all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Largely in my workplace, when I ask our workers, they all look at me and they laugh kind of like you were today because they said, you're right. We've worked hard to manage our workplace that 99% of our workers are really good people who are just trying to do the best every day. So everything I'm doing as a leader needs to work to build the trust and candor and support of those people. And that 99% will help you be successful with the other 1%. And, and when you do an investigation to determine culpability, I guess what I would question is, is what does disciplining the worker fix? Because that, that's a really interesting question. I, I would suggest that it feels like you're doing something, but the assumption is, is that the worker failed because they intentionally chose to fail. And if you can prove that somebody's sabotaging your system, then I would actually suggest, A, you don't have a safety problem, and B, probably I would actually call the police, right? Because that's a crime. For the most part, trying to punish your way into better safety really doesn't do a very effective job at it. And the accountability question, because this should be a really important question. I'm actually super glad you guys are asking it 
because it means you're chewing on it. And I, I really think we need to chew on this a little bit because I would just ask you person to person, when you discipline a worker for making a mistake, what actually have you done? I would tell you that disciplining a worker for making a mistake is a lot like peeing in your pants. It's an immediate relief, and then it gets sort of uncomfortable and creepy. Thank you, Sidney Decker, for that amazing image. It really does kind of burn in and right where it counts. Right. (laughs) But in the long run, in your business, high-risk operations with high variability, which is what you guys do for a living, I'm not sure it makes you better. And you can tell me, well, it has a deterrent effect throughout the workforce. And I will tell you that the data simply does not support that. The challenge you're having right now is that this notion of accountability seems really important because the alternative is no accountability. But none of us are saying no accountability. In fact, I would share with you that when you think of accountability, think of this. I count on my workers doing the right thing. And they count on me giving them a system in which they can thrive and be safe and not get hurt. And that notion of accountability is really a shared value. And I would actually suggest because of where you are in your performance, and I would imagine all of us will say this at the, at, at the table, the accountability question is not really about forcing accountability down to your workers. We're really today having a discussion about pulling accountability up over you guys. Because when a worker fails in the field, you have to ask this question, is this an individual failure or is this an organizational failure? And what you're going to find is, in most cases, with good workers doing high-risk work in highly variable environments, the worker didn't fail Fortis BC. Fortis BC put a worker in a situation where he could not be successful. And that's really going to be a big part of your discussion. The great news is, if there's good news in this, is that eventually this will become less of a problem. It's You guys jump in. Once you start seeing the world this way, there's no going back. It's like seeing your grandma naked. It's not going away. (laughs) It's burnt into your brain. I mean, it's there, right? Because once you start asking the richer system questions, then you, you, the need to go back and hold workers accountable becomes very unimportant. In fact, I will tell you, once you start asking the richer system questions, the question you're going to ask a lot is, well, how come this isn't happening all the time? What do you think? So, you know, it's interesting. Our leadership was really focused on the accountability question and still is. So welcome Jeremy Jordan, who's an organization and performance leader in his public utilities uh, uh, department division uh, where he works. Really smart guy. You'll love Jeremy. First of all, he's the nicest guy on earth, but he's really smart. Listen to his answer. You'll see why I'm saying all this. When you when you get out of your HR seat or your senior leadership seat and you go into the, the worker seat and look at investigations from their perspective, you realize these things start getting really predictable. So, so workers go out and they perform. They make some kind of mistake. You can almost see them start looking at each other like, oh, here it goes. You made one of those things that uh, upper management's attention is going to be drawn to. Who's, who's got the lot this time? Whose job is it to take accountability? What we found in our organization, our workers are too accountable. You'd have an investigation, and, and basically somebody would be standing up, and you could see the conversation. Okay, guys, it's my turn. I guess I'm accountable. I'm going home. Yeah, it was my fault. Uh, I made this boneheaded thing. 
when we started doing learning teams, we had to actually stop them and say, I don't care. Please, let's not talk about blame. I don't care who's at fault. What we want to do is stop this from happening again. And they kind of looked at us like we were a little bit crazy at that point, like, wait a minute, that's not part of the conversation. You know, I think that's the boring part of the conversation, the accountability piece. Uh, has everybody seen that table? Uh, there's a table out there that tells, breaks down from a scientific perspective what percentage of your events should be caused by a crazy person is my way of putting it, the, the red box events. Rob Fisher has a good version of it. Lots of people have done it. He basically breaks it down. When you look at issues in your organization that are not systemic in nature, crazed by, created by the system, and um, are not caused by somebody trying to do the right thing, you should expect about 1% or less of all your events to be this crazy person who rolled the dice and wanted to hurt somebody. But what we find is that the results of our investigation are actually much higher. So then that acts, we should ask the question, what's our bias that's leading us to blame people when really we should be looking at the system? But again, I think the, the real problem is that our workers are often too accountable, not accountable enough. And I just build on that is, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to follow up with a worker when something goes wrong, but how often do they say, I screwed up? You don't have to punish your workers. They're punishing themselves. If you have anybody who's half-wise competent at their work, when they make a mistake, they just feel like crap about that. You don't have to pile on. If you're that helping hand as a leader to say, I understand, now let's talk about where do you want to go from here, you're putting money in the bank that you're going to be used down the road. And that's a real conversation you have to learn. The first time you sit across from a worker and say, I know you feel like this is your fault, but if we stop here, all we've learned is that you screwed up. What we'd like to know is the bigger, richer context story of how we got in a situation where one mistake could have this consequence. And that becomes a much more, well, what it'll do for you guys, and don't trust me, I mean, just go out and try this, is it, it makes your job easier. Because now the things you fix are really quite fixable. I mean, I'll just tell you, you don't manage your workers' behavior. They manage their behavior. You'll, if you've raised kids or dogs, and there's a difference, but I don't know how much. We can talk about that later, right? <laughs> you learn very quickly that you don't manage behavior. What you do is create an environment that fosters really good decision-making. It fosters really uh, the ability to, for people to move in a forward motion. And that's what you're doing in the organization as well. And, and so... You're really there. If we look at these extreme examples, then we'll always talk about extreme cases. You'll have people that will intentionally violate your procedures. I promise you, it's happening right now. The question is, is what's going on in their mind to make them take our most important procedure and not follow it? And if you can't answer that question, then you don't really know what to do. So you've got to look before you leap. And discipline should never be an automatic solution. It should never be a first solution. But that's really an important part of what happens. Does that make sense to you guys? I mean, is that good? Because we could talk about this one forever, and I feel like I do. Built a room on my house. <laughs> Let's go to the, to the panel or whatever this is. How do you guys measure success? Kimberly, what do you got for us? You're good at this kind of stuff. So for us, actually, I mean, we have the same industry standard TRR. That's always going to be there. What we found was... Um, we're starting to, to talk about that less in the organization. It used to be something that we talked about. Everybody knew. You know, they knew our, all the workers knew. They knew the TRR, and they knew they were contributing to that if they got hurt or, or if something happened. So now this is Kim Iverson, and Kim works for a major oil and gas company. I won't say the name, but she is the manager of high reliability. And so this company moved from New View Safety to... Uh, hop human performance straight into high reliability 
And Kim Iverson is incredible. Her background's really interesting. She came from the regulator and went back into the practitioner level and really leads an organization now that is world-class. They wouldn't admit it because no highly reliable organization would admit it, but world-class in the way they do and manage reliable performance. And it's remarkable. Like Kim's a breath of fresh air. You'll hear. So we started to talk about that less in our organization. So it's, it's more of a leadership conversation now versus a, a conversation throughout the organization. And it won't go away because it's just a good benchmarking number that people still use until we find something else to start benchmarking against. So that, that's the one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is the other way that we're measuring success is by what are we doing that's making those different changes? So we're having different conversations. And having those different conversations, you start to see that we're actually changing and making a difference. We're, we're talking about how much we're learning, what kinds of defenses, and how many defenses are we starting to put into place, and how is that making a difference? So it's just a totally different kind of conversation than those metrics that kind of count different things and those traditional metrics that we have. And, and I'd maybe just add one on then. It's, it's a soft metric, but how often do people tell you bad news? come to you purposefully and tell you bad things. The more you hear about that, the better you feel. So I think when you look at lagging indicators, they're all negative usually, right? So when we, we hit a lagging indicator, it tells people we've done something bad. I think a really effective way of looking at leading indicators that we're trying to do is to make them positive and something to shoot for. And, and I know a lot of organizations are doing that. Um, so one example is a rubric. Uh, rubric breaks down a behavior into several components of how do you get really good be behavior or outcomes. And it gives somebody an ability to score themselves. And a lot of rubrics go from poor to sufficient to excellent. And so the goal is, hey, we're trying to get to excellent. It's not easy, but we're, we're striving, we're stretching as an organization to get better. And I think the more that you can give leading indicators that are positive and, and give a stretch goal, that makes your, your measurements something people want to be part of, right? as opposed to, oh, we've got to hide stuff because it's bad. And think of metrics as an intervention, and think of your audience. If you want your workers to get better... Give them metrics that actually encourage them to improve. So measure things they have control over, measure things that can make a difference. Now, Todd. does rubric also make a cube? Is that the rubric's rubric cube? Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, I just wanted to add one thing, just to give you a picture of how, what kind of value we put into TRR now, or total recordable rate. When we work with our contractors today, they are usually not necessarily working in this space yet. They'll come to us, and when we ask them what you know, what's their safety performance like? What are they doing in safety? The first thing they want to tell us is about their TRR, and then that's the end of what they want to tell us. That's not even meaningful to us anymore. That's, so, so that's great that you told me about that, but can you actually tell me about your safety programs? Tell me what, what safety means to you. What are you doing? What are you seeing? The, the TRR can be great or it can be terrible. It actually doesn't really mean much when we start to talk about whether we want to work with you or not. So that just gives you a little bit of a picture of sort of how we've shifted our mindset when it comes to using these numbers. What about the timelines for you guys in ConocoPhillips? That's a question that's come up a couple times on our chart. How, how long do you think it takes to go through this change process? I kind of think I know what you're going to say, but I'm curious. I'll, I'll start off. So I was in the leadership team, so we got exposed to it first, and within a year we were done. <laughs> Perfect answer. Sure you we were. <laughs> so what I would say to that is that we're not even close to being done. Um, and, and we know that this takes a lot of time. And uh, I would say that, that after the first two years, we really started to get some traction about what we were trying to achieve and really starting to see some things. I mean, it, it's, and it, but again, it's important to remember that it's not a quick thing and it's not, 
it's not linear either. Like you can kind of go backwards or you'll have pockets that go backwards and pockets that go forwards. And, and you start to see all the different ways that this can impact your business as well. So we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that this is going beyond safety in our organization and going into other parts of our organization. So there's so many places to go with this that we'll never, we'll never be there. Like we'll, you will never hear either one of us declare that ConocoPhillips is a highly reliable organization and that we were there and we're good to go. It's just the fact that we're on that journey and continuing to move towards achieving that. Um, but, but I mean, it's going to take a while and we'll never get there. So the conversation starts to drift towards procedures. They start to talk about, you know, the notion of compliance and regulatory and procedures, uh, willful violation, one right way to do a job. And that's really interesting. And then from the back of the room, a hand raises and a person who hadn't said anything all day long asks a question that's worth a million dollars. And the question he asks is, how do we keep this sustainable? And Jeremy comes to the rescue with this answer. It's moved into our HR side of things when we talk about performance management. What does that look like? And we've partnered with HR to understand how does this work in a, how do we make this work with performance management and keep people moving forward in that space? It's in, it's in our, just all of our leadership conversations. We have lots of conversations about what's making us uneasy about our work. It doesn't have to be about safety. It could be about anything that's making us uneasy. So it's, it's, there's lots of places where it's kind of seeped in and starting to grow. I don't know if you would. I have two other examples. One would be in our exploration production world. We're uh, drilling a Montney play right now, and uh, we, my former company, are drilling a Montney uh, play right now, and so we have to drill the wells. We take water to uh, fracture stimulate them, drill new wells. That water goes through a plant that you flow back through, and it goes into new wells. So, but this has to happen nonstop because it's a, com- a complex system that's interconnected. And... Th- the complex systems that are interconnected fail and fail brilliantly. Yeah. And so we, we, you know, we were able to use the, the language around high reliability to help them see that and understand that, to say, what's your plan if something happens? What if you don't get your permits? What if we can't get more water? What if, and they, originally they, they went with the, the uh, assurance case where they went through the process and said, here's how we will assure that everything will be okay. And then they ran it through with a high reliability mindset and they realized that's probably not a very robust system. So now let's look at the different failure modes that occur, could occur and come up with different strategies about how we might react to that. So just switch their mindset around from that idea of being having a lot of assurance to a lot of unease. The other example I'll actually use is at our senior leadership team, where we used to uh, meet on a monthly basis. We would have a strategy meeting all day with the senior leaders. We would start that meeting off always with top of mind. So question, what's top of mind? And kind of go around the table. And those were you know, good conversations. This year, we switched it off to a, a conversation that we learned from the safety side is, what's causing you unease? What's making you feel uneasy right now? Much more ro- robust, rich conversation and, and irrefutable. If something's making you feel uneasy, so our, the first time we asked that question, the head of legal said, I'm really feeling uneasy about the amount of regulation and changes that there are in Canada and British Columbia, as an example. Well, I'm in charge of government relations as well. I can't really go to him and get all defensive and say, Steve, I think you're wrong. I have to listen to that and go, oh, that's interesting, Steve. I wonder why you're feeling uneasy, and what do I need to do to help manage your pain? They're all the exact same things we do on the safety side, but we're applying them to other parts of our business, and now all of a sudden things are being surfaced that are much richer than they were before. So the conversation moved pretty carefully 
and we talked about all these things. And eventually we got into procedures and, and one right way. And is this the way to do the work? And that conversation was good. It was long, but it was really good. And then towards the end of the meeting, a guy in the back row who hadn't said much the entire time raised his hand. And you know when that happens, something's going to happen. And he said, how do we maintain sustainability? How do we make this sustainable? And Jeremy comes to the rescue with this answer. The areas I see in our organization that are most successful and that are having the biggest impact have a leader who's doing a lot of storytelling. And a lot of that storytelling is personal. Here's what I saw out in the field today. Here's what I learned when I saw that out in the field. Here's what I want to change as a result. Here's the conversations I had with employees to figure out how we should change it. Um, Here's how I changed something I did with my kids at home. Here's how it impacted my driving. You know, so storytelling to me is if, if I could figure out a way of measuring that as our leading indicator, that would probably be our number one. So what we did, well, what we do is usually start to talk about all the things that we're seeing as a result of, of going down this path. And actually, a few years back, we had a real true test of this, to be honest with you. We had an incident that on the surface, it was a, pretty, it was a fairly significant environmental situation. And on the surface, you could have easily just said, those workers weren't paying attention, and, and they just weren't doing what they needed to do. And, but we, our senior leadership didn't take that sort of more easy way out, I would say, and really took the time to understand it and learn. And what we ended up learning was that there was such complexity to that situation that we really could get ourselves to the... We learned enough to get ourselves to the point where everybody could say, yeah, I, I realize why those workers were doing what they were doing. I understand now why they were where they were. And so that was sort of one of our big tests about, you know whether or not we really believed in this as an organization. And so when you get somebody new that comes in and wants to know why we do this, we start to sort of lean on the examples as to where we've seen this really make a difference and a change in our organization, and, and that's why we continue to do it. Don't you probably have a better answer? No, no, I'd, I'd build right on that. I was thinking of two incidents, actually. So that same incident, um, it was our corporate folks looking into how we were operating in Canada, and our operations leaders stood up for their people. That's the biggest thing in, in the why, because we have fantastic people who are incredibly skilled and the best at their job in the world. And to heck with anybody who's going to come and accuse them of otherwise, right? And so that pride as a leader to say that we have a great, great team reinforces that we'll always do this. It was a pretty amazing meeting. It really was. I wish you could have been there. If they do it again, you got to come. Promise me you'll come. Will you come? Okay. Pinky promise? Swear? Okay, we're good. Special thanks to Jeremy Jordan. Um, John, you were incredible. Your whole staff was incredible. Kim Iverson and Daryl Haas, you guys made this go. And, and there's there's so much more. I had to edit for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that I just wanted to give you guys a taste of, of what it sounded like from the field on that Thursday afternoon in Vancouver. It was worth it. So that's the story. That's it. That's the podcast for today. Uh, learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. Be safe.